You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, Jesus turns the water to wine. Just fantastic. We want to take a a look at the text and then reflect on what it means for us. John begins, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Cana uh, is a little bit... We're not 100% sure actually where Cana is. There's two or three places that are very likely... It is, though we know, up by the region of Galilee, just a few miles from Nazareth. And it seems like the Holy Family, who lived then in Nazareth after they were in Egypt, uh, would have been familiar to the people there. There were some connections, maybe family connections or maybe some friend connections, such that Mary was invited. Now, it seems maybe almost accidental that Jesus was in town at the same time. He had called a few of his disciples already, and maybe he was visiting Nathaniel's house. And so when it turns out that Jesus is in town, he also is invited. Now, this weddings were a big deal in the ancient world. I mean, they were a, a multi-day arrangement with lots of feasting and drinking and dancing and a lot of other sort of liturgical things that were going around. And they were important. In fact, I read this week that... Uh, that wedding processions were the highest of every procession, so that if there was a wedding procession and a funeral procession, the funeral procession would stop and let the wedding procession go by. And that as the wedding procession went through town, that everyone was to join in. And, and in fact, they had these funny customs where they would join in the wedding procession, and then they would start praising the beauty and the humility and the virtues of the bride, so that all were going in procession, talking about how beautiful the bride was. Well, so there's this wedding happening in Cana, and Jesus then is invited also with his disciples. Just a quick note on this first verse to to point out. I don't don't know exactly what to do with this, but that but that John never calls Mary Mary. He always refers to to her as the mother of Jesus, and that's the case in this verse as well. Jesus, verse two, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, here, just another historical note. We remember that Jesus had called by this time six of his disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and a sixth, probably James, the brother of John. But we want to remember that there's, there's two phases in Jesus gathering together of his disciples. So this is right at the beginning when Jesus has a few of his disciples, and it seems like that their arrangement at the beginning was a little looser arrangement, that they follow him for a while, leave for a while, they're back for a while. Then then for a while they go back to their work. And then when Jesus is really ready to get serious, about two years before his crucifixion, he calls them from fishing and they stay with him permanently. This is why we have the, the calling of the disciples in the early ministry here. And then we'll have the calling of James and John and Peter again when they're fishing because Jesus, in fact, did call them to the office of discipleship twice. Now, uh, as far as we can tell, there's not all 12 then of the disciples with Jesus, but six. And then verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, this was a big deal, especially at a Jewish wedding, that they had run out of wine. But it probably wasn't Mary's big deal. 
And it probably wasn't Jesus' big deal. It was the big deal of the bridegroom, of his family, and of the master of the feast. They were the ones to be concerned with these things. But look, Mary is concerned. And I, and I think it's just it's interesting to remember that Mary herself probably would not have had a proper wedding. That the Holy Family was... I mean, everything was happening on the down low because Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary before Mary and Joseph were married. And news of that kind of thing would not have been received well. So that if they had any wedding, it wasn't a wedding like this wedding. Mary's conscious of that. But the other thing is this. We see that Mary knows that Jesus can do something about this lack of wine. Now this is particularly interesting for us. There is no evidence at all that Jesus performed any miracles at any time before this, between his birth and now, when he's about 30 years old. And the text supports this. Remember, he calls this the first sign that Jesus does. So it's not like Jesus or Mary would have seen Jesus performing miracles at home. Like he would have turned water into wine if they ran out in their home or something like this. So it seems unlikely that Mary would expect a miracle. And yet Mary surely has learned to complete, to put her complete confidence in Jesus. To sort out any trouble. Now, this is the first of, of a dozens of times in the scriptures, in the gospels especially, that people come to Jesus and expect things of him. You know, this happens just on every page of the Gospels. People are coming up to Jesus and they're expecting Him to help their problem, to sort out whatever's going wrong with them, to deliver them in time of need. But now Mary is the first to show this, this inclination. The inclination of faith to look to Jesus for help in trouble. But this is exactly what we are to do. She is our example here. It's in fact what it means that Jesus is our God that we look to him for help and we look to him for deliverance. But Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in the wine problem. He says, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally, what is this between you and me? My hour, he continues, has not yet come. Now, I think, you have to tell me if this is right. I think that when Jesus says to his mom, Woman, that that sounds very harsh in our ears. I mean, it sounds rude. He should say mom or mother or something like that. But, but we want to remember that at, at perhaps the most tenderest moment that the Scriptures reveal to us between Jesus and Mary, when Jesus is on the cross and He's giving Mary into the care of John and He's giving John to care for Mary, He uses the same exact word. He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So that we should hear this word not as a harsh rebuke, but rather as, a, as, 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 a, as the tenderest address of Jesus to Mary. But Jesus does indicate in his answer to Mary that, first, running out of wine is not their problem, and second, that his hour has not yet come. And that the, the business, I think maybe this is a third thing, the business of their family and the business of his saving the world and being the Messiah are to be are not to be confused. Now what Jesus means when he says his hour has not yet come is a little mystery. Normally when Jesus is speaking about his hour, he's speaking about the hour of his death. He's speaking about the cross. So for example, John 
12.23 says, Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. That's the hour of His trial, of His suffering, and of His death. But it seems like the hour that Jesus is referring to here would mean the, the time for Him to begin publicly manifesting who He is. The time for Him to begin the public work of salvation. And He says it's not time yet. But Mary seemingly is not deterred. She, this is wonderful. She turns, verse 5, Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Mary, Mary doesn't insist, we want to notice this, Mary doesn't insist that Jesus fix, fixes the problem. She leaves it up to him if he's going to do something about it. But she does set the servants there to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. Now, I don't, I don't want to miss this morning that these words right here, do whatever he tells you, are the last recorded words of Mary in the Bible. It's the last thing we hear her say. Now, no doubt she would have spoken. We just don't have what, what she said when she spoke. It doesn't record it for us. I mean, Mary was there. She was with the disciples. She was, she was in the upper room. She was there at the crucifixion. She was there at the resurrection. She, she's in the book of Acts. So Mary was around. But these are the last um, things that we hear her say, and I, I, we should underline that. It's almost, it seems to me as if the Holy Spirit anticipated all of the problems that would come into the church regarding the teaching or the doctrine of Mary. There, there is then, on the one hand, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary, which venerates Mary to such a high degree that a lot of times, not officially, but in the superstition or in the practice of the church, it almost rises to the point of idolatry. So that prayers are addressed to Mary, or Mary is called the Queen of Heaven, or even she's given the name co-redemptrix, as if she and Jesus are both our Redeemer. Now this is dangerous, and it's false. And, and hearing the words of Mary stands against it. Mary says, whatever he says, do. F- fix your eyes on Jesus and not on me. Listen to his words and not mine. He is the Redeemer and the Savior, and Mary rejoices in His salvation just as you and I do. I suppose you could fall off the horse on the other side as well, that Mary says in her heart, remember when she sings in her song, The Magnificat, she says, all generations will call me blessed. And we do that as well. We call her blessed. That Because of the incarnation of Jesus, Mary is called the Mother of God. She had in her womb the One who was God and man in the flesh. But this is how it is, that with Mary, the main thing is Jesus. Like every single Christian, Mary points away from herself and towards her son. Do what he says. So we get to the miracle, verse 6. There were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. In other words, these are big jars. They would have gone around the village to find the biggest and the fanciest jars to decorate the place for the wedding feast. And the jars are there. John doesn't want us to miss this. The jars are there for the ritual washings required by the rabbis. This comes up a couple other places in the Scriptures. You remember especially how Jesus and His disciples would get in trouble by the Pharisees because they hadn't properly washed their hands 
These jars here at the wedding are the jars that are set apart for this hand washing. And this hand washing wasn't just to get your hands clean, to get the dirt off of your hands. All these different kind of pourings and washings, which you'd have the number of times that you poured it over each hand and direction that you would hold your hands and everything, that these were, these were invented regulations required to be spiritually clean. In other words, they were simply legalisms. They were works that you would do to make yourself right. Now, we want to notice how much wine there's going to be. According to the text, 120 to 180 gallons. It w- they, Cana would have had wine for months. So we continue, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, this is just, it's just fantastic. That Jesus doesn't just turn the water into wine. He turns the water into good wine. <laughs> he turns water into the best wine. And John, years later, would remember. I, I can't help, I think I've told you this, it's this picture stuck in my imagination of John, who was there as a young man and a disciple of Jesus, who later in his old age was bishop in Ephesus, or just he was in exile on Patmos, an old man. And so here Pastor John is serving the church in Ephesus, and he would go over to someone's house for dinner to go and visit them, and they would they would serve the meal and they would put the wine on the table and, and old man, Pastor John, would take the glass of wine and he would sip it and he would remember the feast at Cana and he would say, not as good. <laughs> it's never as good. Never as good as what Jesus has done. But this is what happened. The master of the feast tastes this wine. He doesn't know where it came from. He tastes this wine and he's almost... He's almost beside himself. He goes to the bridegroom and he makes this kind of, this, he ta- tells this crude parable, which you normally would, the master of the feast would never say this to the wine groom. He says, what's going on? Normally the way we do it is we put the good wine out first and we leave the junk for later when people are, you know, a couple of sheets to the wind and they don't know the difference. But you've done it the different, you've, you put the, you saved the best for last. It's, a, it's another little note in the text, that, and this is really quite stunning, that John wants us to know that the bridegroom didn't know where the wine came from, and the master of the feast didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants knew, and the apostles knew. It's the humble and the lowly that see the work of Jesus. And in the last verse of the text, verse 11, John concludes wonderfully, and this first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now we notice in this verse that John calls this this miracle of Jesus a sign, which is a miracle that teaches. That's what a sign is. It's not just a miracle that blesses the person who's receiving the miracle, but it's a miracle that indicates something more is going on. And the sign that Jesus is putting before us and the people there in Cana is both who he is and what his work will be. And the first thing is, I mean, he's saying that he is the promised Messiah. So all 
All the promises of the Old Testament that the kingdom of the Messiah would be dripping with wine are here fulfilled. He is God in the flesh. The one who can take water and turn it into wine. There's an old line in a poem about this text. And it says that the water beheld its creator and blushed. Do you know this? Now, I think that's kind of silly. But it points out the fact that Jesus is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who is able to, to do these things. To turn water into wine is not a big deal. But he also gives us in this sign an indication of how it will be in his kingdom. I, I get this question all the time. You, you guys probably have all at one time or another asked me this. It's something like this. Pastor, if we're forgiven, then why do we need more forgiveness? If we're, for example, saved in our baptism, then why do we need to come to the Lord's Supper? Or if we're saved when we hear the Word, why do we need to come to church? Or whatever. If, if God gives us His salvation already, why, why do we need more? Well, I think that there's something in the turning water into wine that Jesus answers this question. He just always wants us to have more. They could have had a fine wedding with just the water there, but Jesus says, no, let's more. And probably they could have done with three or four gallons of wine to make it through the rest of the feast, but Jesus says, no, more. I mean, why, why is it that when we come to church and we hear that our sins are forgiven, that we don't just leave right away? It's because Jesus has more, more to give in his word, more to give in, this, in the hymns, more to give in the preaching of the word, more to give from his altar. He's, so, so that Jesus is not interested in like the, the minimum requirements for salvation. He's lavish in his grace. He's abundant in his mercy. With Jesus, it's pressed down and overflowing. This is how he talks about it. It, it, with the measure that he uses, is it causes the cup to overflow. In other words, Jesus would have been a terrible waiter because he would have always been spilling the drinks. He doesn't stop when he gets to the top of the cup. He just keeps giving more and more and more. That's just how he is. Your Savior is the one who turns water into wine. Do you see? Here are these, these jars set apart for purification, and Jesus transforms them into wine bottles so that these jars can stand as symbols for all the old legalisms, all the old efforts to become righteous and holy before God by our own works and efforts, and Jesus takes them away. You see, that, that's the other half of the miracle that I often I, I think we miss. It's not just that Jesus... Uh, turns the water into wine, and now there's all the wine that you could possibly need. But also, you know what there's not? There's not any water left. So that, you know, ten minutes after Jesus turns water into wine, a mother of one of the Pharisees would go over to wash her hands, and she'd see that there's no water, and she'd go find her son, the Pharisee, and say, Son, they ran out of water! <laughs> I mean, this is, Jesus takes that away. He... He, Jesus, when Jesus comes to forgive your sins, he takes away all of your works and all of your efforts to forgive yourself, to make yourself holy, to make yourself righteous according to your own terms. He undoes your attempts to scale the walls of heaven, to achieve a perfection so that God can be happy with you, to cleanse yourself of your own sin. All of that is done with when Jesus does it. When he dies... 
when he bleeds. I mean, this sign, you see, is not just pointing to who Jesus is, the creator of the universe. This sign is pointing to what Jesus will do on the cross. To to provide the true cleansing for all of your sins. The cleansing that the the water uh, that were there in the pots, the cleansing that could never actually take away sin. Jesus will accomplish that. He will win it. He will make a way. This is it. Jesus will make a way in his dying, in his death, and in his resurrection. Jesus will make a way now for us to be purified to enter into the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb of God. Where the, the, the wine will never end, where the joy will never run out, where the bliss will be forever where we will be dressed in robes of His righteousness, where we will sit in the place that He is even now preparing for us as He promised when He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And there, in His presence, we will delight forever in Christ our Bridegroom. He turns water into wine. He turns sinners into saints. He turns God's wrath into His smile. He turns turns hell and condemnation into heaven and the resurrection of the body. He turns sadness into joy. He turns fear into confidence. He turns sin into faith by His forgiveness. This first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory. And we, his disciples, believed in him. God be praised. Amen. And the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.